Everyone knows that when they've got so many tabs open on their computer that it runs the battery down. Well, how many tabs do you have open on the surface of your mind right now? That is draining your battery. So again, you train yourself not to just put more tabs there, but to actually lose them all. And then your mind can be open to the experience that you're having, which is quite literally mindfulness. That is high-performance coach Matt Griggs. And this is episode 245 of the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. Welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thanks for being here. This is episode 245 of the show with high-performance coach, keynote motivational speaker, and meditation teacher, Matt Griggs. You can find him on Instagram at Matt, M-A-T-T, Griggs, G-R-I-G-G-S, or online, mattgriggs.com. If you're new to the show, welcome. Hi, thanks for coming. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Uh, this is episode 245 of the show, but there's 244 other ones. I do the show every single Monday. I have done it for years now, and you're here. Great. This is your first time. There's so many others to explore. Um, if you don't mind, if you don't know me, my name's Osher. I'm a what can I tell you? I'm a TV host from Australia. I'm currently working on a show called The Bachelor, which is actually starting on August 15th, which is very exciting. Um, we have a new bachelor this year. His name is Nick. He's uh, lovely, and it's going to be very interesting. Uh, I used to work on shows like uh, Australian Idol, which actually had its 15th anniversary of debuting the other day. We all kind of texted each other like, oh, my God, 15 years. Holy shit, how old are we? Very. Um, and for a long time, I worked on a music television channel called Channel V here in Australia, which is where my guest and I actually crossed paths long time ago. He and I actually touch on that, but more about that in a moment. Uh, look, what I'm not working on telly. I'm either uh, with my wife and stepdaughter cooking, I'm hanging from a chin-up bar, I'm on my bicycle, or I'm busy making this podcast. Um, like I said, there's so many other episodes. Go have an explore. Check out an extra couple if you like. There's many there. What is this show? This podcast is a conversation that you get to be a part of, and it's a, conversa- it's a conversation designed to hopefully help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. Sometimes this conversation will be with somebody that your name, the name that you recognize, and you go, ah, oh, boom, I'll download that. That, that. that name looks familiar. Sometimes this conversation will be with a name that you don't recognize, but I guarantee you, no matter whom I'm having a conversation with, no matter who is on the show, you are going to hear something that you need to hear today. I promise you. That's the promise of what I do on this show. And why? Because what I really want to do here is just help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. That's all I want to do with my day, and I you know, I hope that I can help you do it with yours as well. That's my job. That's what I'm here to do. I do want to welcome a few new people who might be joining in today as momentum starts to build around the release of my book, which is coming out on the 20th of August. We got hard copies of the house the other day. I'm actually holding one in my hands right now. This is the book. You can't see it. That's pages being flipped. That's the book right there. Um, 
That's me knocking things over on the shelf when I put it back up. Uh, yeah, that's as 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 bits and pieces uh, of that start to filter out, and, and you know, little bits of what to expect from the story in the book begin to emerge. People are, I guess, starting to find out things about me. Um, that if you have been listening for a while now, you'll know. I don't hide any of this stuff from you. But now the book is coming out and a whole bunch more people are beginning to discover the kind of conversations that I like to have here on this show. Conversations about headspace, conversations about acceptance of your headspace, and about life in general, about how we can kind of you know, just try and make things a little bit better for everyone. You know, it's not that hard. Well, apparently it is, but it shouldn't be. And we're trying to make it not. So there's a few new people here, and I'm glad you made it. How was your week? If you knew, how did you go? What's going on? I had a pretty good one. We had a milestone over on the Facebook group. I'm undoing a water bottle. Hang on. I'm going to drink from a water bottle. Hang on. I'm drinking drinking work. Oh, that's better. We hit a milestone this week on the Facebook group. 800 people are now a part of the Facebook group, which is super nice. We're really close to 900 too. You can join in, osher.is slash fbgroup. I made a short URL so it's easy to find, osher.is slash fbgroup. Just go there, join up, answer some simple questions, come and be a part of what we're doing. Some great support happening there, some great conversations. I have been pretty chatty on Facebook this week, a lot of people messaging, a lot of people emailing me. I've been doing my very best to try and keep up with all of that. Lots of people resonating with the conversation uh, that I've started to have um, as we get towards the launch of the book. Um, a lot of people resonating with the conversation about drinking, a lot of people resonating with the conversation about anxiety, about managing your brain, about medication, about living with a different brain. But I've noticed that I've started to have a couple of many similar conversations. So let me break down the most common and, and hopefully these can resonate a little further than beyond people who've, who've gone to the trouble of, of clicking and messaging. And, you know, maybe if you read it, what I wrote or... You know, this show resonates with you. Maybe these things will, you know, align with what's going on in your life. So, the number one thing uh, that I've got, I do have to say, and it's very important to say this if you were told by your doctor to take meds and you then decided not to take those meds, please go back to your doctor and get back on your meds. I know they make you feel shitty. I've been on them. They can make you feel shitty. I've been on them. It's okay. They do make you feel better in the end. Sometimes you have to try a different couple of accommodations, but you'll get there. I promise you, I had to do it. You can do it too. Because making a decision not to take your meds with a brain that needs meds to make decisions is not a good decision. Okay? I'll say that one more time because you need to hear it. Making a decision not to take your meds with a brain that needs meds to make decisions is not a good decision. Okay? I know it's hard to accept. But that's the fact. I know what it's like. I know how much you don't want to take them. I've done it. In my case, I did the classic magic trick of the mentally ill. If I don't take my meds, I don't have mental illness. Brilliant. Yeah, that didn't. No, I did. It doesn't work. Don't do what I did. Um, being, Being an acceptance of what's that what is happening to you is bigger than you and therefore is going to need something bigger than you to heal it. That's really important, okay? Really important. So do it for yourself. Do it for those around you, okay? Just do it if you want. Do it for me. Do it for me. Uh, the second thing that a lot of people want to talk about is about drinking. 
because I did mention uh, that I used to have, I used to use alcohol as a way to manage things until the alcohol became unmanageable, and I had to stop altogether. Look, I know what it's like to want to stop but not be able to stop. Thankfully, there's many, many people who've been there before us, and they figured out a way to do it. Yeah, they figured out a way to do it. They figured out a way to stop drinking. Yes, even you, even you who I cannot believe I have to drink every day. Yep, there's a way to do it. And some people, smart people, have figured it out. If you're ready for a day that doesn't end up exactly the same every time, then you're ready to listen to what those people have to say. Now, some of it will be confronting, that's sure, but it'll be less confronting than dealing with the ramifications of your drinking if you keep going. So there's a few different pathways. I personally, I started going to 12-step fellowship meetings every day. I found incredible support, incredible support, incredible help, incredible guidance. Just people saying, stop, stop what you're doing. Just do this, do this, do this. And I just listened to what they said and I did what they said every day. And you know what happened? It worked out. All right. Plenty of meetings all around you, all around Australia, all around the world. Plenty of support. Um, there's also uh, Chris Rain, who came on the show from the team at Hello Sunday Morning. They have a very interesting app. It's called Daybreak. You can download it on your phone right now. Uh, I rate it. I rate it highly. Uh, so maybe, you know, while you're, you know, looking for a meeting to hit, also download that app. Get on board. Have a look around. Have a poke around. Go explore. If you've been drinking heaps, and I mean heaps, I mean like if you shake in the morning until you get that first drink in you, um, you are going to need to see a doctor. That's fine. Just go and see a doctor and let them know what you're trying to do. And your doctor will be very kind and very helpful, I promise you. You just want to make sure that it's safe to transition off of that volume of daily drinking, um, particularly if you've been that way for a while. You might be a little more fragile than you, you remember. And uh, we just want to make sure that you're going to be safe. Uh, so make sure you do that. Which brings me to number three. The third biggest thing that I've been talking about with people this week. There is no shame at all in going to your GP and asking for help. That's what they are there for. If you're feeling that your life is out of control, whether it be from a mental illness or from overwhelm or from anxiety or from drinking or whatever, the best way to get some control back into your life is to do something for yourself, is to shift that locus of control more internally. Taking control of a situation that's out of control can give you incredible power. Taking control of the parts of the situation that you can control gives you incredible power. Asking for help and getting help, it is an action of self-love. It's an action of self-care but it's also an action of care for those around you. So if you look at the people around you and you're like, oh my God, I can't believe how much I'm fucking up my relationship with these people. If as an act of care for them, like in the same way, can I get you a glass of water? Can I tuck you into bed? I'm going to go see a doctor because I care for you. I'm going to see a doctor about myself because I care for you. Try and envision, envision it like that. Look, it's a powerful move. It's a strong move. It's a move you should be proud of asking for help. It's a move you should be proud of. There's no shame in taking the wheel back and driving your life where you'd rather be going. It's something to be proud of. Make that appointment. Ask for a referral to a detox if you need it, for a psychologist if you need one. And on that, if you are seeing a psych and you're doing everything they're telling you to do, even the things that challenge you, you've got to, you've got to, if they say, you know, you've got to maybe consider your relationship with your dad and how you're thinking about it, you're going to have to listen to what they say. Even if you do all that stuff and you're still not feeling better, look, it's okay to shop around. You're worth finding someone that you gel with, someone that you work well with, 
because you're worth feeling better. I shopped around. I found doctors. I kept going to see different ones. You know, I gave them a good chance, like six months here and there, until I found one, you know, that, oh, this is working. It's okay. You can do that. You're not married to these people. Um, and Which brings me to number four, the fourth most common thing that I was talking about. It's along the lines of that, that internal locus of control. If you're feeling that things are out of control, think about what is within your control. All right? What are the things you can control? Really simply, you can control what you eat. You can control how much you sleep. You can control how much you exercise. And you can control how you approach your work. Diet, exercise, sleep, and purpose are all things that we are in charge of. And they go a long, long way to making us feel more in control of our lives. If you can do only one of those things, prioritize sleep. Get that eight hours in. Do what you can to get that eight hours in. I know that I've been, I've been honest with you. I haven't been getting eight hours in sometimes. And when I don't, my hair trigger comes back and I get set off again into the ruminating doom thoughts. The machine fires up again and my head just goes off the rails. And I, oh, it's not as bad as when I was in psychosis, but it's not fun. Um, and I know that comes back to not getting enough sleep. Um, but I do know that if I'm getting enough sleep, if I'm eating right, if I'm making sure I hit at least 30 minutes of exercise every day, I'm way more resilient. I can control those things pretty easily. So that that's the short version of what I've been talking with people about this week. I hope those things resonate with you. Um, I hope that you can see that each one of those things, it's you that has the power over the situation and things will change and things will start to get better when you make the move. It doesn't have to be a big move. You don't have to stop drinking forever, just today. That's it. That's it. You don't have to, you know, change the entire way you eat for the rest of your life. It's just the next the next meal you make. That's it. Just the next meal you make. Make it a nice one. Make it a good one. It's an act of care. It's giving yourself a hug, you know. Don't go for the three-piece feed. Maybe make yourself a nice salad. Make something healthy. It's an act of care for yourself. And it's just the next, it's just the next meal, all right? Just, just. Break it down. It's just the next right thing. That's all you've got to do. I do want to say um, a big thank you this week to two fabulous people, Tiana, Alexa, and Alison Stringer, two new people who signed up on Patreon this week to support this show. Podcasts are free to listen to, but they're not free to make. Uh, I do have to pay the people that help me make this show. So if this show does bring you value, if you feel like you feel like you'd like to repay that value that it brings you, please consider sharing the show uh, either you know with a photo of what you're looking at while you're listening right now. Put it up online hashtag Podsy P O D S I E. It's a picture. It's like a selfie, but I'm like this is what I'm looking at when I'm listening to the show. Um, there was one that came in this week. Uh, someone going for a run through the Swiss Alps, and it fucking blew my mind. It was the best. Um, you could even rate or review the show on iTunes. That also really helps me here. But, you know, like the Wu-Tang Clan said, cash rules everything around me. Around me. <laughs> and um, Andy and Rachel, my producers, don't work for free. So, patreon.com slash osher, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash osher, where you can send some dollars our way and help keep the lights on here at OGPHQ. Um, Alison and Tiana, thank you so much. If you do need me through the week, you can always email me, send us your email at gmail.com. Thanks to everybody that got in touch this week. I... I'm thrilled that you're all here right now because. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. My guest this week is an absolute cracker. Matt Griggs is a high-performance coach, keynote speaker, and meditation teacher from Sydney, Australia. You can find him online at mattgriggs.com, M-A-T-T-G-R-I-G-G-S.com, or on Instagram at mattgriggs. For years, Matt worked with some of the world's most successful athletes in the surfing world, helping them focus in and out of the water for not only world-beating performances and competition, but resilience out of the water too to deal with the the pressures of a life of that kind of profile and that amount of travel that is required when you're on the world tour. Matt Griggs famously coached three-time world champion surfer and famous shark puncher Mick Fanning and six-time world champion surfer Stephanie Gilmore. She's an incredible athlete. He's also coached numerous NRL players and heaps of other elite athletes. Matt's also a meditation teacher, and we delve right into the particular kind of meditation that he teaches in this podcast because while I'm still a novice, I do try to meditate every day, and I do find it to be very beneficial in my life. I also know that not everyone will use the same kind of meditation that works for them. Some people prefer mindfulness. Some people use an app. Some prefer a mantra meditation uh, or another way of finding that particular place in your thinking, That another way of getting your brain to do that particular thing that happens in meditation. Whatever it takes, I'd encourage you to give it a go because I don't know much, but I do know that when it comes to people I admire, every elite athlete, every world leader, broadcaster, performer, business person that I admire – they all meditate, every one of them. I reckon there's something in it. I really do. Matt and I do get a bit technical when we start talking about focus and consciousness, but that's okay. You can hit rewind and listen again to really wrap your head around anything that might have slipped past you because I'm all about these kind of conversations because while our lives may be full of questions, how am I going to deal with this? What do I do now? Thankfully, whatever problem you and I have had, whatever things are hassling us, thankfully, Someone's already had this problem before and they've figured out a way to deal with it. All we have to do is find them, find the book they wrote, find them in real life, whatever it is, find out what worked for them and try and apply parts of that that apply to us to our lives. Boom, problem solved. 
I'm so grateful you get to hear this conversation because Matt is a fascinating man. He's a lovely human being, and this is going to be a goodie. You're going to get a load out of this. Let's do it. Hello, Matt. You good? I'm good. Thanks yeah. for coming over, buddy. Yeah, my I'm pleasure. Trying, I'm trying to figure out if we've crossed paths before. We have. Yeah? Yeah. I was wondering if it had come up. Yeah. When did we cross paths? <laughs> it was at a uh, restaurant called Lele's on the North Shore about, I'm going to say, as early as 2004 when I was working for Rick Curl. Um, we were having dinner there or maybe we were celebrating. A, it felt celebratory. So I, I think you walked into a party I because I used to coach the Rick Curl team. And, uh, yeah, you came and hung out for a little while. But there was a big group of us. 2000, it was the end of 2003. I'd gone to Hawaii to get away from the Australian Idol thing that had just, just finished. Yep. I took a week there. I'll never forget. I pulled up uh, and who's that extraordinary Brazilian guy? Uh, Renato. Yeah. Renato gave me the most amazing directions to get to, uh, get, to where I was, get to where I was going he goes, no, no, don't take the highway, turn right, go through the pineapple fields, get up there. And um, in typical uh, Haole fashion, I rented a bright yellow Mustang convertible <laughs> and I, I got out there. I'll never forget the first day I was looking for my friend Jesse Fain yep. uh, to Jesse. catch up with him. And um, Mark Ocalupo was walking down the street outside Jesse's house and he goes, Yellow Mustang, eh? Nice and low key from the North Shore, brah. <laughs> Grigsy, oh. I was so out of my league. I was so out of my depth. I had oh, absolutely hilarious. no idea what I was walking into. And um, there was like I don't I had no idea who, you know, I had to have it was one night actually when Taylor Knox, um, Taylor Knox pretty much saved me from Possibly a very, very sticky ending because I had no idea about the territoriality of talking to women uh, yeah. on the North Shore and that there was a group of men who I won't name um, that basically at the start of the season put dibs on people. It's like nobody talks to her, nobody talks to her. And I remember Taylor just going, um, yeah. I was actually with Jesse. He's like, mate, if you want to get out of here, if you want to get out of here on peace, you're going to want to. Just, just come over here and talk to me for a little while. Stop yeah, talking to the girl. I know she keeps wanting to come and talk to you. Um, and then she got really mad and she was getting all upset. And then she was mates with uh, someone Taylor was sitting with and Taylor had to sit and just basically explain to this girl, I don't know, if he keeps talking to you, this is how it's going to end for him tonight. And I'd never seen eight bigger Polynesian men out of nowhere just show up yeah. with necks as wide as my leg. <laughs> Yeah, there's different social politics in every country. I was right? terrified, Matt. I was terrified. The night you're talking about was a benefit for Bethany Hamilton. Ah, okay. Good. Good memory. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I I was on the early like the the the, the early side of uh excellent binge drinking uh and drug use. So right. <laughs> my hippocampus is still working fairly fairly well. You were having fun. But I remember that night that I was a good yeah. night. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was it was a bit wild. Like it'd only been six weeks since her attack or seven weeks since her attack and she was mm. giving out signed posters and Yeah. I'll never forget the look on her face. Like she's such a little kid. Yeah. Then so strong. Like isn't she just a beautiful soul that's turned it into such a, a good story and such a good I mean the story's one thing but who she is is so much better. Mm. You know what I mean? I, I love how she grew from that experience and obviously yeah. inspired a lot of people. Well, shit, you are, you're, you're probably, we're probably about the same age. 
I'm 44. How old are you? 41. You're 41. Yeah. So that was 15 years ago and you're yeah. coaching the Rip Curl team. Yeah. How did – okay. <laughs> how do you – okay. Okay, wait, 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 wait. Let's just roll, let's just roll back a little bit. Um, so people know coaches um, and now that people know life coaches. Um, but coaches are the people that, you know, we see behind a glass box on the phone at the footy. All right. How does a coach for surfing work, man? Uh God, I, I mean, when I first started, there wasn't a great deal of people doing it. Um, I always had an attraction to it. Like I started as a professional surfer and I, my mind always just thought performance. Yeah. I just always thought that way. And, and I, you know, my career didn't go as well as I would like it to. And isn't that the funny case that the almost made it end up becoming good coaches? <laughs> but anyway, I, I began, I, I kept studying and... and uh, what were you studying? Well... My pathways are a bit different. I didn't really go to academia. I didn't really go to university or anything like that. And we'll, we can expand upon that. But at the time, I, I just I, I just read books. I was talking to people. Um, I started coaching a few people, and and that went well. And then I got a phone call from the head of marketing at Rip Curl saying he wants to create this new role. Am I interested? And it was called the Global Team Pit Boss. So I became this you know inverted commas Global Team Pit Boss. And I just my job was to help the guys on tour. There was five of them at the time, and the best way I knew how was performance. So I, beca- I became uh, their performance manager or coach, I, I guess you could right. say. And I was sort of straight in the deep end. I didn't have a great education. So I kind of learned as I went. And yeah. uh, I was fortunate enough or humble enough to sort of know that if, if I don't know something, I, I better find someone that does. So I, we had this crazy good support network. And when you coach someone like Mick Fanning or, you know, Stephanie Gilmore, you, you have a, a people that are attracted to those sort of people. So you have these, I don't know, elite crew around that we learned a lot from. So I guess in that vein, I became more of a holistic uh, head coach where I just, I learned from all these moving pieces. And I certainly understood right from the beginning that I was going to help someone like Mick uh, achieve his goal, which was world champion. I, I better understand all the moving parts. I better understand... Uh, everything that influences his performance so I, I set about just continued studies which for me was always experiential was always talking to people was always reading books asking Mick talking and that was sort of how I kept developing myself as a coach so you talk about uh, education not being like, not really gravitating towards academia I love the way you put that <laughs> uh, I, I do have experience and exposure to the surfing world through the work that I did at Channel V for a long time. We worked with the ASP and Billabong at the time following uh, the tour, yep. um, following the junior tour, going to Chopu. Um, that, that's what got me to, to meet someone like Jesse Fain, uh, who now works for Magic Seaweed. Um, he was the head of media for ASP for a long time. But um, what I did notice was that I'd, I'd never really – They were all, the people that we were working with, particularly in the junior tour who were maybe 18, 19 years old, um, men and women, mostly the guys we had exposure to, um, they were, guys are like, wow, you, all you've ever done is this and all you've ever done is hang out with other guys that do this yeah. and why would you want to go to school when you could be doing this and, you know, the board short company is going to pay you a couple of grand to <laughs> do this instead of sitting in a classroom. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Was that kind of your path? Is that how it started? A little bit because I did. I was fortunate enough to become a professional surfer, so it did go that way. But uh, I, God, I was just learning on the job, you know, and my boss at the time just said, you know, you've got some very interesting people around you. My, my advice would be to learn, you know, and I, I really yeah. did. I, I, I worked really hard, as yeah. you tend to in those early parts, you know. I realized I... While I, I wasn't the, the best, I was probably one of the only ones. So there wasn't really a comparison point for another surfing coach, so to speak. So I had a bit of a jump start yeah. there. But 
Yeah, I just learned on the job. As I said, we had a lot of good people that came in and sort of helped us, whether it was in nutrition, whether it was in psychology, whether it was in uh, uh, exercise and movement and how that relates to becoming a better surfer. Yeah. So I just sort of, I, I came in and helped where I, I had something wise to say. If I didn't have something wise to say, I just shut up. <laughs> and I think that's good advice for people. <laughs> it's probably the smartest thing I've heard someone say on this show in a long time. Uh, so what, what, was, what was your home beach? Where did, where did you first ever paddle into a wave? Uh, Cronulla. Yeah, I grew up just south of here in, in Cronulla and uh, was attracted to the ocean very early. You know, I, I just love the feeling of riding a wave. I love the feeling of being in the ocean and, and it made me feel just good. And to have that opportunity to, to surf professionally was just unreal. But to be really honest, I didn't, I never loved the competition side of it. I always felt a bit sensitive to it. And, uh, How's that? Uh, I didn't like the winning and losing and I felt bad if I won, I felt bad if I lost and it just felt really brutal. There was so much jealousy, there's so much anger, there's so much resentment, there's so much stuff going on inside, you know, people that you don't always see on the outskirts, you know, like people see what's happening on the outside, that they're holding trophies and that, you know, we're winning and losing heats and, uh, you know, I, I, with my sensitivity, I could sense a lot more than that and, and uh, I just... It was a bit tough for me. I didn't in those days. I didn't have a way to understand and how to deal with all that. So I just did what you do. You just escape or you do something else. Um, but yeah, I, I, I there was one part of me that I that I did like the competition. I liked that it brings about your best. I just didn't want it to be at the expense of someone else. And yeah, didn't feel right. A lot of people listening might not have ever been to Cronulla. Uh, <laughs> they know about Cronulla through its coverage in popular culture and the coverage in the news. What was it like to grow up there? It was cool. Uh, I mean, what I love about Cronulla is you've got this uh, big, long beach and you've got these amazing reef breaks. I, I love the reef break side of surfing. You've got the city on one side and you've got the national park on the other. So you're right in the middle of sort of two worlds. And, you know, I just, I, a lot of my work, especially these days, is in the city and, you know, as well as on the beach. And, and then I like to escape into the national park to get some, you know, downtime and alone time. And I just, I love that aspect of Cronulla and, you know, there was a, the culture's changed there a lot, you know, since I've grown up, but um, there was a lot of examples of how to live and how not to live. <laughs> Such as? Uh, growing up in like a board riders club, you know, you sort of see a, a great uh, um, cross section of humanity, particularly Cronulla board riders. It had such a, God, it was it, so many, you know. So early, early on, you folks were like, ah, something's going on here with Matt. Let's get him slightly more organized about this surfing thing. Yeah, they kind of let me go. They weren't super pushy parents or anything. I was pushing myself enough. <laughs> they were just kind of driving me to the comps and driving me to the beach. But yeah, I joined the Board Riders Club when I was around 10. And, and there's everything from these bright minds running big companies to, you know, alcoholics and drug dependent people and a lot more of that in those days. And to me, that was just such a great education because I could see the result of certain behaviours, you know, and I've just always been that sort of person that pays attention. Uh, so I, I paid attention to that and it made, helped me probably make better decisions as I grew up. And this is just, a, it, I guess it's like to, to put a parallel on it, it's like, I don't know, like the social cricket comp or the social football comp that someone might do after work. It's a it's an amateur yes. uh, group of people who come together on weekends and have competitions between themselves to see who's who's a great surfer. And then afterwards, there's sausage sizzles and beers <laughs> exactly. that generally kick on. And yes. there's kids running around being grommets, uh, you know, being you know in the pecking order of what <laughs> surf is. I yes. mean, I've I've been to surf clubs where there's a grommet cage 
where they would, you know, at Narrabeen actually, where they would, it was supposed to be for stray dogs, but they would put a lot of kids in there. Yeah, yeah it's fucking funny, isn't it? Cunt? It's like, no, that's actually not very funny, but I get it. Um, so yeah, that would have been that would have been eye opening. Certainly, you start, and I remember, you know, what it's like when you're a kid and you start seeing people from different social backgrounds and different value systems, and then you are together doing the same thing it must have been must have been pretty opening for you absolutely yeah i, I can you know uh i mean sliding door moments right you're like which way do i go we're just faced with decisions every day you know and you're making decisions and here he is where we are but um yeah that was a, a really good education as a as a teenager because we don't get all the information we need from school and and you know not always from our parents so to be able to watch just real life examples was pretty enlightening right and so it was through that board riders club that what you started to get the attention of who, who was the first person that went you know what because you got you've got something here you we, you know we're going to go into a away game and i think you're going to do well yeah um well there was a photographer at the time who's sort of been i'm, I'm sure you'll know who he is has been a little bit banished since but a, a guy named sarge who was a photographer and um yeah he was had connections with companies and stuff like that so i i got some sponsorships and in the days before instagram can you explain yeah. why knowing a photographer was so important uh, it was rare for one, and yeah, then you got photos in magazines, which which was part of the the value proposition, I guess, as a professional surfer. Is the lenses were very very expensive, prohibitively expensive yeah. lenses that could get either in the water or <clears throat> from the land to the water, and so it wasn't like now where everyone's got an image stabilized zoom lens, and you know I can have someone sit on the beach with an iPhone and yes. shoot content that will get someone's attention, or a drone in the air, dude, right? Um, but then you had to know someone. Yeah. And how, how did the, you know, pe- people can, you know, learn more about that particular man that you're talking about. He, I, he was always lovely to me. He was always an interesting guy to talk to. And I got the value that he brought a lot of young people's careers. I understood it. Um, can you explain a little about how that relationship works between a surfer and a photographer, to be, particularly in the early days of their career? Yeah, well, in uh, they take photos, of, of course, simple thing to say, but uh, because of those photos and they have connections to magazines and stuff like that, then your image, I guess, goes to the masses. And in those days, it wasn't Instagram, it was Tracks magazine and it was Waves magazine and things like that. So if you got a photo there, it was kind of a big deal and, you know, you got incentives from sponsors. And so our, part of our job was to not only win these competitions and you know travel around and try to become a professional surfer in a competitive sense but also to get uh as much exposure for whatever brand you were sponsored by you know uh-huh. so it was it was phone calls going swells right the wind's right get those board shots out of the packet we're going yeah yeah right. and often, everything's inversed right like you've got to wear boardies in winter because they're selling the selling cycles right you know what i mean and you're wearing a steamer in the hot heat of summer and yeah I mean, God, it's just, this is bringing back so many memories because I haven't talked about this for so long. Uh, I mean, when I had the Rick Curl job, I was watching Mick and all that do it, but I didn't have to do it. I was just kind of in the in the background. But yeah, I remember doing it myself back in the day. Yeah. And so through those photographs, you started to get more attention from companies. There was financial incentives. School was like, eh, less important. Um, no, I actually did all right at school. Yeah, I, I, my, my dad's a school teacher, so I, I there was an appreciation of education in a school. So when I say I dissed... I didn't really diss at academia, and we can get to that in a moment. I um, actually did pretty good at school. I, I in year twelve, I was uh, I made the world titles, which was over in Brazil, which was a, a, an experience as a seventeen year old. Um, and I had other events to go to, so I missed a lot of the school. But I, I still did well enough to get accepted into university. But um, I deferred it, and then I deferred it, and I kept on deferring it, and then this job came up. Right. So do I go 
back to a university and, and learn how to be a coach or do I accept the job, job with Nick Fanning and learn how to be a coach? <laughs> Tell me about being in, like, so you're going from grade 12 in Cronulla, which I'm pretty sure is the same as grade 12 now. It's people starting to explore their uh, young adulthood, I believe, at the time in New South Wales. You're 18, aren't you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Turns so, that year. so yeah. well, yeah. So, there's a lot of parties. There's alcohol around. There's girls. There's boys. There's you know people experimenting with all kinds of things that change the way they think and feel. And then you're like, see everybody. I'm going to Brazil. What was it like, Lance? I'm guessing you were in Florianopolis in the in the south. Um, in Rio for the um, for the comp. Yeah. Right. How did you go? Yeah. That was um, uh, that was, the world tour went there, but that's where we went for our particular event. But um. What was that like? Was that the first time to oh, a country yeah. like that? And just yeah. wild, you know, like you just, uh, as a kid, you just, you're culture shocked and you just, you don't really know what you're doing. You know, you have guides, you have coaches, you have team managers and stuff like that. But yeah, you don't really know what you're doing. Yeah. It's, it was, you just thrown into a whole new environment. And, um, you know, as far as the school and all that, like upbringing, I just, I didn't really drink. I mean, I, I sort of had a few parties here and there like every young person does, but back to the education of watching people in the Border Riders Club, I saw a lot of talented people fall away, you know what I mean? And just, I mean, every local beach will tell you a, a sob story of how this guy was so talented, you know, and then he started drinking. So I just, I went, got it. <laughs> You're so lucky to have seen that. And I, I mean, I, I'm not like, like this, like I'm holding cross right now with my fingers yeah. um, to alcohol, but... Uh, because I drink here and there, but it's, um, yeah, I, I can see the effect it has but on people. But you're so lucky to have seen that. It's so, so lucky to have seen that. Yeah. Not, not many people, you know, people like me, I, I believe the beer commercials. Yeah. I believe that if, you know, if all I had to do was kept drinking and then suddenly Alan Border would show up and then we'd be fishing <laughs> on an island somewhere and shit was going to be awesome. <laughs> he never did and yeah. it never was. But, you know, I, I believe the ads. You know, yeah. I didn't have the opportunity to see see what you saw. What did Cronulla feel like when you got back from South America? Uh, hmm. The world was bigger and Cronulla was smaller. Yeah, I started to get more perspective. I started to get like world perspective. You know, I think it's just a great thing for a young mind to travel because to put the pressure on someone to know who they are and know what they want to do at such a young age is just so silly. But um, I was so fortunate to have all those experiences, you know, and, and to travel and I, I love coming home. I, I still love Cronulla. You know, I just, I love still to this day that feeling of being able to do my work in the city and, you know, coach people and teach people and do keynotes and stuff like that. But, you know, I can go and, and where, I, where I really got most of my education in the National Park. Yeah, which uh, for folks who aren't from this part of the world, it's it's very very close to particularly where you are. Like from here on a in the morning, if the you know traffic's right, we can be there in forty five minutes. So I can yeah. be walking into the sand in forty five minutes, yeah. and it's this untouched, extraordinarily set aside with a visionless vision, visionary decision <laughs> sometime in the eighteen hundreds to not develop that part of the coastline. It's the second oldest national park in the world, and it's amazing. Yeah, behind Be- beaches that are just. Uh, pristine and and pretty scary <laughs> in some parts yeah so I've, yeah i have come I've, i think i've got the biggest wave of my life at gary beach once it was terrifying but it was great <laughs> but it was terrifying <laughs> it was so scary uh but yeah it's 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 an amazing part of the world you know to to, to be in and 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 uh to have access to that in oh, a major yeah. metropolitan city city is just it, it ended up really molding me because I, you know, from a very young age, I, I, like I said, I was reading a lot of books. I had a lot of smart people around me, but I was one of those, you know, teenage kids that was attracted to the more esoteric books, you know, like that word enlightenment kind of hit my ear when I was 11 or 12 or 13 years old. And 
I went, what? And ever since, it's just been like a, my biggest attraction. And that kind of stayed in the wayside, you know, while I kind of got distracted and tried to surf and tried to compete and, and probably compromised myself a little bit in the meantime. But, you know, I, I, uh, I learned a lot and I became a good coach, I guess, in, in the long run and, and had an amazing experience with the Rick Curl thing and, you know, seven or eight years on tour with just some bright minds like, you know, like Taylor Knox, like uh, who's just like a best friend now and Mick and, and Stephanie Gilmore and many others. And I left that job because I, I just had all these questions mm. you know and I, I realized that the biggest piece of the puzzle and, and if you look at high performance or health or happiness whatever your thing is and really there's just three things to train in life your mind your body and your craft um, and all the pieces of those puzzle I, I the biggest one is the self-awareness piece the biggest piece is, is is knowing yourself and I was a little short there you know and I realized everyone I was, I was working with was a little short and I had read all these books and I just hadn't had time to absorb them all I hadn't had time to put it into experience because there's a big difference between intellectually remembering something and actually knowing it, you know what I mean? Because everyone's read The Power of Now, but how are they going with that? So I, I, for so many years, how many times have you seen masters or heard masters say the way is within or, you know, all your answers are within you? So I, I've only just been telling the story the last year or so, but <clears throat> I quit the recall job and I thought, fuck it, you know, I, I just, let's check that out. You know, I just... I wasn't unhappy. I was more extremely curious because it's either suffering or curiosity that drives people. And I was extremely curious. So here's what I did. I went to the National Park by myself for the next probably, I don't know, four years every day for around four or five hours. So while I didn't go to academia, I didn't go to university, I just, uh, and I don't have a degree on my wall, but you could say I have a high degree of awareness as a result of kind of going inside and as a result of spending God, 11, 12 years now, you know, meditating every day and, and really being a good student of, of understanding myself. And um, I'm, I'm in a, a very positive loop with that because I, I, because I work with people. It's such a, uh, a good loop back to me to make sure I have, you know, something good to share. I don't want to waste anybody's time. You know, I want people to walk away from the experience, any experience they have feeling better about themselves and feeling better about who they are and the direction that they're going in life. So I went in there to, to solve a lot of those things. And it was just a, God, what a, what a time. A lot of people avoid that kind of introspection. A lot, a lot of people avoid that kind of rigorous introspection because it requires you to challenge the very things that you define yourself as. Was it uncomfortable? Um, at times, yeah, because you've got to face your fears and that's why people will generally avoid that because it's it's much easier to blame the world than to look at themselves. Um, so I just, while I went in there with curiosity, I soon found my fears and I soon found my blocks and, you know, I can't remember who says it, but the, the quote of uh, the block to the task is the task, you know. So I just, as I started to try to, to understand this abstract nature of the mind and I had an amazing way to do it, which we can get into today as well via the Keeley, which actually Taylor Knox introduced me to. This is a particular form of meditation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we can get to that in a minute. But, uh, yeah, I just had a way to understand the mind and a way to train it. And, God, I was just learning, like, at hyperspeed and, and um, started teaching it. And, and um, yeah, I'm at a much different place in my life now. And, and um I feel good. Did you have it when you went? So you went to the National Park for, like, four or five hours a day. Yeah. Every day. Yeah. What did those days look like? 
By the way, I was living with another coach at the time, uh, Matthew Elliott, who was an old NRL coach. I'm not sure if you remember him. He did the Canberra Raiders and Penrith Panthers and anyway. And so the two of you were just on this monk trip, you just on this mission? Yeah, I started teaching him and he was the one that got me in to teach the Penrith Panthers. But uh, my days looked like I got my, um, my stand-up paddleboard, which was a gift from Red Bull when Mick won his world title. And I went in at Gray's Point. I probably don't want to give it away, do I? Because in case it gets crowded. But oh, that's such a, just just to just to explain, it's such a surfer thing. You can talk about. There's some places you can talk about. We can talk about Bondi Beach, the South Bank of Bondi Beach, all we like. We can talk about what conditions it works in. When the wind is in this position or the tide is in this position, go there. But then there are secret places that nobody talks about. So it's okay if you don't mention it because that's the that's the thing. It's almost like no, we don't we don't talk about that. But listen. Locals only. <laughs> Let me paint the picture. So the first time I went in there, it was this late afternoon and it was twilight and I'm moving up there slowly in my, um, my stand-up paddleboard and it felt like those marshes in, uh, in Star Wars where Luke Skywalker is with Yoda and uh, it just felt, this is where I'm going to learn. I just loved it and I went all the way up there and there's a waterfall at the end and uh, it's only a 10-minute paddle so it's not like an exercise or anything but... I can be there within 20 minutes of leaving my house and, and sit, you know, and I still go up there quite a lot. I've got two kids now, so time's not as uh, uh, abundant as it used to be. But, uh, yeah, in those days, that was just such a, a huge learning for me, you know. Did nature. you take books with you? What did you do up there? No, I, because what we all need to understand is that there, there's, there's two points to everything in life. There's what you're working with, you know, which is people, places and things. Let's call that the secondary point. And then there's where you're working from. Yeah, I didn't go there to learn about the secondary things. Yeah. So when you got there, you, you parked the stand-up paddleboard, you found a rock to sit on. And I sat, yeah, and I just, I'm not like a yogi who can sit for hours on end. I have to get up every now and again. So I, I would do my practice. The meditation only goes for five minutes. So that was over pretty quickly. And then I would just, the, often there would, I'd take my journal a lot and, you know, write things that I'm learning and questions that I had that I could later ask my teacher if I didn't understand them. Because I had an amazing teacher through all this, you know, to this day as well. It was Taylor's teacher as well. Um, so I could ask questions and I would just sit and see what came to my mind and what was I curious about, what was I, why am I fearful of that, why am I stressed about this, and just started to sort my shit out, <laughs> basically. Man, it's way cheaper than the 300 bucks an hour that I spend to go to my psychologist, but, you know, I like it. Yeah, I like it. it. Do you remember the first surfer that noticed that you had something to offer? Do you remember the first person that asked you for help? Um, I think people had a feeling about me, like Mick, who I... We'd met plenty of times, but he, uh, we didn't know each other super well. And he got, was offered four or five different people and he, he, he chose myself and, and as did the others. And I didn't even know him that well. So, so, so no one had asked you when you were an amateur, can you help me get through this title or get through this competition or what should I do out there? Or Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. So maybe uh, it worked. Yeah, you know, and and I, you know, got some good results with people that I was working with. So I, you know, if something works, people keep asking, and word of mouth, like if your shrink is doing a good job, mm-hmm. then you'll tell other people. Yeah, you know, so that's kind of how it's always worked with me. But yeah, then I was in it, and and uh, and you're in it, and, and what an education it is. So I just, yeah. I, you know, now, these days I feel like I've got this understanding of the mind that is so valuable, you know, and so important, and I've seen so many lives change as a result of it. And as a background to that, I've got this coaching experience too, you know mm. what I mean? But I would probably, even though I've got all this, you know, 15 years of pretty high level, you know, coaching experience, because I did another year on tour a couple, two or three years ago, Owen brought me out of my hiatus, Owen Wright, 
I still work with him and Tyler, his sister, and, you know, mainly in the mind and teaching him the meditation because they do this practice as well. Um, yeah, I did one more year, but uh, it's a, it's been a great, just the life experience, mm. you know, and paying attention to it because we, this is how we learn in life is by mm. life experience. So first we need to learn to how to pay attention to it. And, and that's one of the first principles of the Keeley and Keeley meditation is your conscious awareness and, and training yourself to be more consciously aware because even like the people that are listening to this right now where they're driving their car or, you know, in the gym, headphones on and pumping it out, I'm sure they've drifted a couple of times already, you know? Mm-hmm. What is it that's drifting? And how do we get that back? Because if you're going to learn from your life experience, you need to learn to pay attention to it. And as I said, there's two points really to pay attention to, the outward environment, to learn to understand and, and how to work with people, places and things, um, and have no blocks there, just, just an understanding, and then how to, you know, where you're working from, greater self-understanding where you realise if you're angry that not to move with that, you know, you, or if you're really stressed, try not to make a decision from that stressed place. Um, so you become a lot more aware both inwardly and outwardly and then confidence is just a natural byproduct but Of that work. Absolutely. But I, I didn't know all this in the beginning, you know, I just I had a lot more questions than answers. I, I just, I certainly knew the psychological piece and, and we talked about it a lot, but we were pretty dissatisfied. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. What was out there, to be honest, because it seemed like they were interviewing us more than we were getting anything out of them, you know, like because all the sports psychs in those days, and I'm not sure if it's changed too much, they tend to interview people like Mick and put out their findings, but there's not many original ideas. Mm. It's just what works for Mick, but that might not work for you and it might not work for someone else. So without an understanding of yourself, without an understanding of how you work, it, it becomes a limited process. You're just basically quoting other people. That doesn't mean you even understand it. So I was pretty dissatisfied with what was out there. You know, I was very impressed with what we learn on a nutritional level, what we learn on a, you know, exercise level. And, you know, I bring that into all my work now. But, and there's obviously so many exclusions of this, but psychology tends to be pretty limited in in my mind because we've got this soaring rates of depression, anxiety, et cetera. And it doesn't seem like it's getting much better to me. So when you you are brought on to work with Rip Curl, who are one of the, if not the biggest surf brand in on the planet, there's an extraordinarily large amount of money resting on the fortunes of these five athletes, all right? Me, people listening to this might not have any clue about, you know, the surfing world, but certainly from what I saw in my experience and, you know, that night in particular, <laughs> um, there's the time you're in the water and there's the time you're out of the water and you're a good-looking, well-paid tanned young fella and there's always just girls in bikini shoots everywhere and there's the female and like it's just party town 
how do you focus these people? How do you how do you take someone from like, yes, you're the best surfer ever. Yes, you're getting paid six or seven figures to do this. Yes, all those girls over there from the reef calendar shoot want to come over to your hotel room tonight. There's a heat tomorrow. Like yeah. how do you how do you focus a guy that's like 20, 21? How do you how do you even start? Where do you start? Oh, it goes from a cuddle to a headlock, doesn't it? <laughs> to pull something out of the way. But I mean someone like Mick, he doesn't need uh Reinforcement. There. He got it pretty early. Oh yeah, he knows what to do. He, he knew the time to have a beer and the time not to. Yeah. Um, but there was others that hadn't got that as well, so they needed. I guess having me there was a bit of uh, accountability. I guess you know. I, okay, let's go. You know, because sometimes people are on the fence. They're thinking about it. You know, or should I go out? You know, devil's on the shoulder. Should I go out? Oh, that chick's really hot. She's looking. Is she looking at me? I think she's looking at me. Maybe I should go out. Just one drink. And all of a sudden, you're there till three in the morning. So you know that early stage when it's fifty-fifty. Let's make a wise decision when you're clearer and just paint the picture. So you would be out with the guys after the, you know, after they've been surfing that day or the night before. You part of your job as a pit boss was to almost chaperone a little. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and we would just avoid that. There were certain responsibilities like signings and stuff like that. But yeah, we 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 avoided like unnecessary parties. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting, like, and, and I noticed the case in later years when I had further contact uh, and, and was around it a bit, like, it was the hanger on kinds that were the ones that got yeah. super loose. Yeah, and, and the the actual the it, there was there was a shift that happens when I think I think it was like around I only know when Billabong, but like when Billabong went public or something, and then suddenly there was just just billions of dollars at stake, and people like Joel and Parkinson stuff like that, they just kind of really got it. It's like, oh, all right, this is super important. Yeah. <laughs> this is super, I can't, I can't go and just be a loose unit and, yeah. and you know, get my get photo taken doing something terrible. I am yeah. a professional athlete yeah. and this is what I do. Yeah, they're, um, they're, you can't get to that level in life. You know, we're just talking about surfing here without some level of commitment. If you're a committed person, it's, there's generally no it, – it's committed in all areas. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so yeah. they could be a committed drinker too. You know, it makes a great drinker. He doesn't – when he does it. So, yeah, I was pretty fortunate. It wasn't that hard for me to, to steer him away. I think as a coach, if you have to motivate, if you have to, you know, do any of that, you, you, you're fighting an uphill battle. I always found it kind of interesting that it was – that surfers did get a bit of a bad rap, certainly in Australian coastal communities and perhaps some smaller coastal towns that might have been deserved with, you know, scaring tourists away from get off our break, you know, that kind of thing and, you know, slashing tyres and stuff like that in the car park. But then again, it was the same surfers that were agitating for change and preventing things like a club med development in Byron Bay all those years ago and, and protecting so many parts of the coastline, but also bringing as you mentioned, the kind of esoteric Eastern philosophies uh, back with them from their surf travels and adventures through Southeast Asia and stuff like that. And it was in that pathway, there was, yes, there was also the knuckleheads who had a tyre iron because you dropped in on them apparently. (laughs) But there was also the guy who was like, oh, yeah, I went for a surf trip and I ended up staying for seven weeks in an ashram. (laughs) And now let me teach you this thing that I found out everything's awesome. I always found that really interesting. Yeah, totally. What a cross-section of humanity. What ties it all together is surfing, but you get such a wide range of people coming from so many different aspects of life. But, yeah, I mean, it was the surfers that really opened up a lot of tourism, you know, looking for waves in Indonesia. It was really surfers and hippies that discovered most of the tourism world. And, you know, they're still looking. And and there's part of that, I guess, as a surfer, that's a really healthy thing um, that you're you know, you're in the ocean, which is a healthy thing to start with. You're moving around, which is obviously healthy, and you have to be present. You 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 have to get into feeling mode because you feel your balance. So you, you get out of your head. 
you know, which is the biggest block for people just overthinking stuff. And, um, yeah, it's just an awesome thing. And, and like you say, you, you, you're exposed to all these different cultures and all these different people. So you learn more. And I, you know, I was attracted to those books, so I would read them and I was not that surfer and that would just go and hang at the beach. And that was it. I did a lot of side trips. So in the days of pit with Rick Curl, I, you know, I went to Giza, I went to Machu Picchu. I went cause I was fascinated by that sort of world for a little while. And I went to Russia cause I loved history when I was at school and I just wanted to see it. So I wasn't, just into surfing i had so many other interests and that was in the end why i left because i i wasn't satisfying all my other interests right just to talk about surfing for just a, a little bit a little bit more mick fanning's obviously just he's just retired which is extraordinary um that he did so at this point in his career and waited and you know got out where he did it's amazing like you look at someone like Mark Richards, they, if they were still surfing at 27, people were like, you're an idiot, get a job. <laughs> uh, Mark Richards could have surfed for 15, 20 more years quite easily. Um, and, you know, it's good that he had a surfboard business that, you know, went from there. But that a surfer then can then go on to other things now is, is, is really great. But could you perhaps talk a little bit about, I mean, it's, it's fairly public some of the challenges that Mick has faced. All right, particularly uh, injuries. Um, we could talk about that, or maybe particularly, you know, with the difficult times that he have experienced with, through his family and the tragedies that befell him there. Could you, if it's all right, could you share a little bit about whatever you're comfortable to share with how you would help an athlete like that through a time that was of, of difficulty like that, please? Yeah. Um, well, Mick's a very good example that we, there are challenges in life, you know, and he's had more than his fair share like way more than his fair share but the one thing i'll say about mick you know that'll be very hopefully inspirational to other people is that he always knew and this is part of the conversation you know is that eventually these experiences will make him stronger eventually he just knows that you know and that he'll be in a hole for a little while he'll be crying and he'll be having a hard time and then he just comes out the other end you know and he recovers and all of a sudden he's just this like god if, if you know hard my mentor always says that um, hardship is strength being earned. You know, Mick's like Mr. Universe on a mental level because he's he's gone through a lot. So, you know, I'd encourage people to, to um, you know, not always avoid hardship. You know, if it's just something small, um, to face it and you'll get stronger as a result. But, yeah, it's part of the quality as he is, you know, because people will remember him not just as this amazing surfer, which he obviously was, but just an amazing human. You know, what a what a feather in his tail, you know, that... that uh, He's, people knew him for that, just a good dude. Yeah, who had been through incidents that would crush a normal human being, not once, not twice, three times, more times if you count his, his, his injuries when he did his hamstring. Yeah. That he could have hung up the wetsuit there and then. Yes. You know? um, were you working with him at that point in time? Um, the first injury was when I actually started. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I started like... So can, can you just paint the picture a little about what kind of injury and, and where he was in his career at the time? Right, yeah. So I get this job and then we're, you know, first mission is to to go to Indo for a promotional trip and, you know, send me as well because we may, may as well turn it into a, a training camp. So off we go to, to uh, this remote location, um, northern Sumatra, and, and, you know, day two or three or whatever it is, Mick 
uh, does this float where he rides at the top of the wave and he comes down, his back foot slips off and he literally tears his whole hamstring off his bone. Um, we didn't even know what had happened because it's a very rare injury. So it was a bit of a baptism of fire, you could say, and nursing him all the way home and you know going to all these different physios and different experts until we finally realised what was happening. The very first physio we saw, he said, oh, you'll be right, you just need to rest for a couple of weeks. <laughs> That's because keep in mind, just because you've got a certificate and just because your Instagram says you're this, it you know, doesn't get a feel for a person if they really know what they're talking about this guy clearly didn't so we went we got a you know different recommendations to see different people until we finally met an amazing doctor who told us what had actually happened and at the time he was the only person that could actually perform the surgery the only person so every time he was talking to Mick there would be all these other people in there learning because they they needed to train other people up to do it it was mostly skimboarders that it was happening too because you can imagine them going to jump on the board and their back foot slipping and they go into the splits uh, so that became you know one of the first challenges he'd already lost his brother when he was a bit younger and I mean back to the drinking thing um, you don't want to pick up keys you know and drive drunk when, when Mick's around it's not going to happen you know that's how he lost his brother uh, and why is it that you know, if we're going to paint a picture here for, you know, general audiences, we, why is it we need suffering to learn? You know what I mean? It's, it's amazing if you can learn from somebody else's suffering. But unfortunately, just the human condition, we, we tend to have to suffer to learn. And that's okay. That's part of life. But what I recommend is that just don't repeat. You know, if you've had a hard lesson, do you really want to go back there? You know, learn step up move on but that's what mick does so we yeah we we he got the surgery and he basically was out for a whole year and i can remember you know he we, we had this amazing um rehab program and and that was a really good lesson and, and a good learning and uh yeah i can remember going to the meeting with the with renato who you know who you mentioned earlier renato hickel and mick looking at me and going let's go see if i've still got a career because he had to get an injury wild card and um at this that. is after a year of, of, of he was rehab. Out for eight months. And- what, what did so he was doing? I remember reading in a magazine that he was, yeah, he, the quote was something like, one of my one part of one of my legs wasn't working. So I trained every other part of my body. Yeah. What role did you play that play in that in that role, in that kind of you know, journey for him? Um, just facilitating, really, because I didn't have the know how to, to rehab that at the best level. So But mentally, you're obviously talking to him. Yeah, just friend and, and just sort of support. And, and um, you know, I stayed on the Gold Coast for probably a few weeks. Yeah, just taking him to all the appointments and just being there for him, you know, because like you said, when you're in that world, it's you have a lot of people, you know, that tell you what you want to hear, you know, that, that want something from you because that's generally the world. When they see you, they see what they want from you. So I was, I was just trying to be real and just trying to be a friend. Mm. Not because it was my job, I actually liked the guy. <laughs> what was it, do you think, that got him through it? What was it that made him not quit? Oh, um, oh, his own strength and his own love for surfing and his own drive. He's just so driven, you know, and he wanted the world title and he uh, he just kept going after it, you know. You get knocked down, he keeps getting back up and he, he keeps going after it and it just shows you how hard it is to do something so elite, you know, to do something mm. so crazy. Whether I mean, in all my time of coaching professional surfers, I've only ever heard four people tell me they wanted to be a world champion, you know, and I've coached probably... 30 to 40 people that are on the world tour. Yeah. Isn't that interesting, you know, that people don't think that big? It's really like, to put it in context to another sport, it's really like Formula One. There are millions of people that do this thing, but there's only, what, 44, 40? 32 now, yeah. 32 people. 32 people that get to go on the world yeah. tour. It's just extraordinary. The, the, the sharpness of the tip of that spear of where these people are in the sport is just 
it's 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 really really something. So you say for example in that in that moment, and I'm sure you've done this with Steph Gilmore and and um, Owen and, and all this kind of thing. Like, it, what? How do you help people get? You know, and you mentioned like you know being uh, being present and being in the moment. How do you help people get ready for that? For that heat moment, where like off to, to paint the picture, you're like you're down on the beach. You might be at, um, you might be at Burley. You might be on the North Shore. There's hundreds, if not thousands, of people. There's a PA. There's music. There's skating. There's smells of food. There's everyone yes. everywhere. There's photographers. There's someone with a video camera in your face the whole time, <laughs> getting your content, getting the sponsors' content, getting distractions. The, it's how do you get people to go? All right. Now you've got to go out and do well, this they thing. they normally have their own little zone. Like Mick put headphones on and he, in those days he used to like to listen to Tool and sometimes he wasn't even listening to music. He just had his headphones on, which means if, if someone's got headphones on, you don't normally go up and start talking to them. So it was his little safety zone and they've got a competitor's area where they can have a little bit of peace. But I can remember one time with Steph when we were on the beach at sunset and um, we walked into the competitor's area, which wasn't that impressive. And God, it was just felt like a really negative environment. There was a lot of complaining going on because the waves were big and some of the girls didn't want to go out. And it was just really negative. I was there for 10 seconds. I went, Steph, let's go somewhere else. And she went, thank you. So it's just even things like that. But I, I look at at least athletic development, you know, is, is four main things to look at your, your physical development, your technical, which in this case is the relationship between you, the board and the wave, uh, your tactical, which is, you know, heat preparation or, or event preparation, execution, feedback, what you're learning from this feedback and how you're putting that into a program to better yourself for the next time around. And then psychological, you know, which is your state of mind. And, and I, I didn't know then what I know now, and I'm sure everyone is familiar with that saying, but, uh, you know, it was later post-recall that my, my awareness of the mind started to really become attuned. I, I think I had a natural gift in certain areas with the, how developed my mind was just as a person. But um, once I started training it, that started to come out a lot more and, and um, that was sort of in the later years. When you have those four elements, is that when you start with an athlete? Is that where you start? Like here's yeah. the four quadrants of where we're going to go. Let's take a you know, litmus test of where you are and see yes. where we need to go from here. Absolutely. Yeah. What's, and, and with performance too, I like to look at just two things. What's missing? You know what I mean? That, that you're not the world champ, you know, or what's missing that you're not achieving your goals or what's missing that we're not finding the next level. And you can paint this picture if you're a surfer or if you're a golfer or if you're an executive, what's missing that you're not getting to where, you know, you want to be. And then the other side of the equation is what's blocking. And most people don't address the what's blocking, you know, which is fear, which is self-doubt, which is anxiety, which is I'm not good enough, which is that sort of negative voice that people can have inside their head. And, and um, so I, I just, again, why I had so many questions, because I realized that was where I needed to spend most of the time. Um, I mean, in the early days, too, because you mentioned before, too, you know, I had all these people and I, I remember talking to Claw, who was the, you know, the owner of Rick Curl at the time and asking, where do you want me to spend my time? And he said, uh, Mick. He said, you get uh, 80% of your results from 20% of your team. And that was when I was introduced to that Pareto principle. You know, a, a funny example I used the other day in a, in a workshop to some girls was, I'm sure you, you wear 20% uh, of your clothes 80% of the time. You know, and it's probably the same for men. You get 80% of your results from 20% of where you put your time. So I kind of got that. You know, and I, I started to run with that and, and started to, to understand his 80-20 and other people's 80-20 and where we needed to put the time that was most effective and to, to get the most out of ourselves. Yeah, so just, just so lucky to have, to, to have all these amazing people around us and just go, yeah, got it. That makes sense. And I would write it down and I would practice it and, you know, like actually not just 
put it somewhere back in the, my brain and mm. talk about it at the pub, you know, and go, yeah, I know all this sort of stuff. It's just unless it actually changes your life for the better or somebody else's life, what is it? So I just I, I, I played with it and made sure it, it, it was um, realised in, in our lives. We might not all be trying to be elite sports people. We might not all be trying to be elite athletes, but everyone listening deals with uh, you can't do it. That's too big. Oh, I'm going to avoid that. Yes. What have you found works when um, dealing with those things? Yeah, meditation. Like I said, there's there's what's missing. You know, if you don't know, it can hurt you. You know, if you walk with ignorance and if you walk without awareness and start doing things, you can walk into trouble. So really we need to learn awareness to become consciously aware. So that was the big game changer for me. It was Noxie, Taylor Knox that introduced it to me. Uh, we're in Tahiti, 06, I'm pretty sure it was. And, and um, I just went, God, man, you're happy. <laughs> And uh, you know, you met him, right? He probably wasn't as happy then, you know, because he had some life experiences as well, you know, like um, breakups, you know, and dysfunctional relationships and fell off tour. And I mean, he was the, one of the best surfers in the world and he can barely even hold his spot on tour. So, and, I, and all of a sudden he was happy. I said, what, what's going on? And he said, oh, yeah, I wasn't always this way. And he introduced me to the meditation. And it just, it, it made sense to me, you know, and I can run through basically what it is in, so people can understand. But I did it that afternoon in the channel at Chopu and, you know, it was a small day. I put the camera away. It wasn't really relevant to their development. So I just, I did my practice and I just felt this weight shift and I, I felt something shift inside and, and I became more aware of something and I just went, whoa, I think this works. I kept doing it and I, I haven't missed a day since. It's been 12 years or 13 years. Yeah, it's not not a bad place to remember when you think about how to do it for the first time. I've been in that channel. Oh, I can paint a picture too. It was twilight. It was orange sunset, and you know, oh, it was just unreal. People would have seen photographs of the wave at Chopu, T E A H O U P, something like that. Yeah. You will have seen wave pictures of it. It basically looks like <laughs> a subway tunnel. That uh, if you're standing on the platform, that's how big the wave it is. You could drive a train through it. It's utterly, <laughs> utterly terrifying. It breaks in about maybe two metres of water, three metres of water, and it's this, open, this swell that just comes thousands of miles across the open ocean and it just hits this this cliff underwater and just lurches up and creates <laughs> this. It's like a, 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 a wave that looks like it's been doodled in the margin of a kid's school book of a yeah. fantasy, right? Yeah. That's what the wave looks if like. If your mind was that warped. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But the channel you're speaking of is this extraordinary <laughs> zone of safety, all right? No, no further than here from that tree away. And you can sit in this channel and the, the wave will go up and down underneath you, but it won't break where you are. And you can be... 15 metres away from death. Yeah, totally. Oh. <laughs> what a place to meditate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was a small day too, so there wasn't too much movement. So. Still. Yeah. So I, I did it and I, I was in, you know, that, later that year when we were in Trestles, which would have been September, I think in those days we were in Chopu in May, and, and uh, I met the founder, Ron W. Rathbun, and, and uh, yeah, I just, I, God, I just learned so much and went, yeah. this is the wisest dude I've ever met. I've, I haven't stumped him with a question to this day. The founder of the meditation. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I just kept practicing it. And, you know, every time we're in the States, I would meet up with him and, and you know, get a lot more sessions. And, you know, Tyler and Owen and, you know, Mick knows him very well. And uh, a lot of people have, have worked with him. Even Slater's worked with him. So. Meditation teachers can get, get, a, get a bad rap sometimes. There's a, you know, I've, I've fallen into the, the, the realm of, you know, you pay this much money and then you get a teacher for life. I won't n n name it, but, you know, I've, I've done that. 
Um, what makes this kind of meditation uh, different for you? Yeah, great question. Thank you. Uh, because people get really sus about it. People get super sus about anyone that's trying to sell them something. Yeah, and so they should. Particularly when it's to do with your own brains. And, or if you're not getting it, you need to pay more money for more courses. That's why you're not getting it. Like a lot of people, boom, steal doors. That's it. Yeah. They'll never, ever, ever have a chance to learn it. No, if you're not getting it, you just need more practice. And you don't necessarily need a teacher because um, this, this practice does away with the teacher model. So obviously I'm not selling you anything here. Um, yeah, I just hope people do it. I, I just Tell me about it. What makes it different? Well, the first thing is you, you have a real meditation technique because meditation by definition is to be at one. Before we talked about there's two points to everything in life. There's what you're focused on and then there's where you're focused from. So if you close your eyes and you start thinking about something, you're creating a second point. Remember what Buddha says, all suffering is self-created. Even if it's just a, a distraction you're creating. So we create these second points. Now, anyone can think, but show me someone that can stop it. That's what meditation is. Meditation is an inactive being process, a mind that is still of thought. It's so much easier to focus on the breath or focus on a mantra, and you'll get great benefits from that, by the way. But they're a concentration technique because it's an active doing process. You're concentrating on something else. So you're actively focused on something, which means it's a concentration technique. You'll get into the intellect and you'll use brain function to do that. Um, the whole point is to get out of your head and into one-pointed focus. Extremely difficult to do, but that's the whole goal and discipline of Keely meditation. So that's one thing that sets it apart is that it's a, it's a real uh, one-pointed stillness uh, technique. And then you have some basic principles to go off. Because if you're going to understand something as abstract as the mind, you need a way, you need a bit of a map, you know what I mean? So some of the basic principles, and they are basic, um, just helps you start to troubleshoot your own mind. So you don't need someone else's knowledge. You've just got your own framework to go, okay, now I know why I am the way I am, and now I have a way to, to start you know, troubleshooting the mind. So the first thing to understand is your conscious awareness. That's just a term to describe how aware you are. Wherever you direct your attention is where your conscious awareness will be. So you've been in the shopping mall and you're like, someone's looking at me, I can feel it. You know, you're, they're literally touching you with their conscious awareness because it's palpable. So you can train yourself to be more consciously aware of your environment, and that uh, goes beyond the physical senses with enough training. That's lesson number one. Here at eye level is the surface of the mind, just part of your anatomy. Have you ever noticed when you've got a lot on your mind, that's where you feel tension? Mm -hmm. So the surface of the mind is a place to make decisions. It's where all your thoughts are realized. It's just a point of reception. Look at it as your workbench for life. Best kept clear. But what happens is most people are so fragmented with thoughts. They've got so, I mean, everyone knows that when they've got so many tabs open on their computer that it runs the battery down. Well, how many tabs do you have open on the surface of your mind right now? You know what I mean? Or when you're just driving down the beach or when you're going for a walk, that is draining your battery. So again, you train yourself not to just put more tabs there, but to actually lose them all. And then your mind can be open to the experience that you're having, which is quite literally mindfulness, a mind that is full of the experience that you're having. That means it's, the, it's a spiritual law of non-distraction. So you train yourself to be not distracted, which is the opposite of your conscious awareness, a mind that is consciously aware. So again, the surface of the mind, it's a point of reception for incoming information, like, you know, via the physical senses, the outside world, shapes, colors, movement, people, places, things. But it's also the reception point this way, the upwelling of emotion that people feel from time to time that comes out of the keely. And just to back up, the keely is a Sanskrit word. It dates back thousands of years, and it basically just means a vessel, and it represents a vessel for our soul. Um, everyone's heard of the term of bottling emotion, you know, harboring guilt or, or whatever, or just stuffing energy inside. So this is just a simple technique to empty and you empty all the stuff you don't want. And you're in complete control of how you want to go, and, and whatever you lose is always replaced by something better. 
Um, so you just start to lose your shit. And not because you're distracting yourself away from it, not because you're coping with alcohol or medication or whatever, you are quite literally learning detachment. Because when you're on one-pointed stillness, you're not feeding any negative looping. You're not feeding any negative thought pattern or anything like that. So you, you start the process of detachment and that's when you can lose your dysfunction. And that's another one of the basic principles. So just to back up, we've got the conscious awareness, the surface of the mind, which is your point of reception. You're a transmitter and a receptor. So if you're clear at the surface of the mind, you become more receptive, you see more. And if you're going to be you know, uh, elite in your field, or no matter what your field is, you need to learn to see more than other people see. When Mick Fanning looks at a lineup, he sees more than other people see. As I do as a, as a coach, I've just trained myself to do that. And I can do the same thing with people's minds. So you become more receptive and you learn to transmit better as well. Just better effective communication. Yeah. Above the surface of the mind is the brain and brain function. Look at your brain as an organic computer. It's where all your programs are. The ones you put there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or you accepted from someone else. So you basically run a defrag across the surface of the mind. You start to stop feeding the bad programming on your control because you've got to learn that conscious control to learn to feed the good habits or refine the good habits and start to starve the bad habits. And that's how you start the process of detachment. But anyway, the brain is where you think, where you analyze, where you store all that data as memory. And based on all this uh, memory, all these algorithms is the programs that we tend to, to run our life on. And, and most people are in that world of action-reaction where they're just in their head. Someone says something, they automatically respond, but it doesn't mean it was the right thing to say. So while the brain is amazing at solving problems like 2 plus 2 and things like that, it's also amazing at creating them, isn't it? Oh, yeah. So we need to understand, well, what, what, how does the brain work? So that's how it works. It's a thinking, analyzation, storing of that data as memory, running a physical body. Below the surface of the mind, we've got the mind and mind function. The mind is more to do with emotion and feeling and just that innate knowing that you have every now and again. You know when your missus comes home tonight and you go, how's it going, darling? And she says, I'm okay. And you're like, no, you're not. What's happening? You felt something different. Uh, what you tend to learn is like if I really want to get someone, I don't listen to them. I feel them. Because most people, they, they're confused or, or they, they're just talking, thinking out loud. So if you really try it, if you really want to understand someone, feel them as much as you're listening to them. Yeah. So the mind is more about perception. The brain is conception, which is the creation of an idea. Literally, that's what it means. But it doesn't mean it's the right idea because people create an idea that they're not good enough. They create an idea that something's going to be scary. It doesn't mean it is. You just created that block. Again, all self-suffering is self-created. So you get into the mind... And all of a sudden you don't create blocks, you just, the mind's just to do with perception. It's non-linear, so it doesn't get forward or ahead of time because it doesn't even have an understanding of time, only the experience of it. So you get into to mind function and then you quite literally become mindful. It doesn't mean you lose your intellect because if you're bright, it serves you to use it, but you just use it mindfully where programs aren't firing automatically, they're firing with awareness because we live in a world where there's so much knowledge, but what we're really lacking, in my opinion, is wisdom making the right decisions with that with that knowledge whether it's worldly issues or, or our own um so that's mind function and then we have dysfunction which is all our emotional baggage when you stuff energy inside and some psychologists will teach you to do that that's a no-no when you stuff energy inside it's in you it's like stuffing mars bars inside you <laughs> what's the difference you're just putting dysfunction inside you. The whole job is to get it out. <laughs> so you hear what I'm saying? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, this is just a simple process of, of um, stilling your mind to detach from that dysfunction, to break looping, and to start to uh, let go of anything that has bothered you, you know, whether it's your own fears or whether it's your own stresses or your own 
I mean, everyone's familiar with emotional buttons and emotional triggers, you know? So when you stress about something and then you try to control it or you, you stuff energy inside, that energy compartmentalizes within the Keeley, and that's when the emotional buttons, the emotional triggers form. We call them compartments in this language. The whole, you know, it's the first time in, in history that everyone's even mentioned how they work. Um, you know, how dysfunction affects us and how to detach from it because most of what we've got in the world is just coping techniques. You know, this is a real cleansing one. and um, It's all well and good for to say, and I'm just, you know, playing devil's advocate for just a second here. Yeah, it's all well and good to go, oh, yeah, 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 but five minutes of doing this isn't going to, you know, make my husband listen to me or, or five minutes of doing this isn't going to make me feel better about what I do at work or it's not going to change the shitty situation that I have found myself in. Um, yeah, how, but 500 minutes might. Right. Yeah, so it, it becomes a process, you know, like just one thing to know is that you are where you are because of you. You did that, you know what I mean, and, and, and take responsibility for your own life. And, you know, we, we, we live in a world, unfortunately, that just blames a lot, you know. They blame their situation on someone else and you're just taking your power away. Um, it's not wise to do that, you know, take responsibility for your own life. And I'm sure you'd agree too that we're, we're, everyone seems to be experts on everyone else but themselves. And here's the thing, you know, and obviously I'm not trying to sell you something here because if everyone learned how to help themselves, we wouldn't have to help anybody else. So that's what I'm working on is helping everyone learn how to help themselves so they don't actually need me. I mean, people keep coming back because I've accumulated a lot of knowledge over the years and I can answer their questions so they, and they, they become very fascinated because once you, you start losing a lot of dysfunction, you get back to that childlike wonder where you're just curious about everything. You don't fear making mistakes. You don't fear people's judgment or ridicule. You just become curious again. And, and um, so I can answer their questions. But yeah, this is just a, you can become your own teacher via perception. If you can see clearly, you don't need someone else to tell you what you're looking at. So are you saying that by taking the time to practice this, I mean, you don't get a six-pack by going to the gym once a month for 10 minutes. You, you do it by having a whole approach to the way you eat, yes. the way you practice every day, you look after yourself, you get enough sleep, you don't eat Mars bars. You, you, know, you do a particular <laughs> set of exercises and then that, then that takes maintenance. You yeah. can't just expect it to be there for the rest of your life. It so simil- time. Similarly, you, this is the thing that you practice every day and after a while you'll start to notice changes and it, does the, do the changes look like, ah, oh, this thing, this person at work used to really bother me or this used to really bother me when my husband and wife did this thing? It just doesn't bother me that much anymore. That's Is that exactly how it turns it. up? Exactly. Because there's been so many people that, you know, might have heard of me on a podcast or read about an interview with Taylor Knox or whatever, and then they just start doing it by themselves. And then I'll turn up to my class in Cronulla a year later and I'll go, oh, you've been doing it for a year, so what have you noticed? I just, I feel more aware and less affected. And that is the telltale sign they've actually been doing it. Yeah, they feel more aware and less affected. So what you say is correct. Yeah, things that used to bother them don't bother them as much as it, it, it used to. It's what you mentioned before and it's a concept that, you know, I, I certainly struggled with at the same time as my head exploded when I was told it. You're where you are because of you. You know, it's confronting. At, at, at the same time I'm like, oh, that makes perfect sense but I don't want to have to take responsibility for all the things that I've done that have let me here. But yes, of course, but fuck, <laughs> you know, it's, it's at the same time, it was such a heavy concept to bear, but I personally, I found a great freedom in that. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Because you, you're the captain, you know, you, where do you want to go? And you, you can go where you want to go, you know, and all the years, particularly recently, since I've become more aware, I just, I, I mean, I coach people, but I don't tell them what to do. 
it's not my my style at all. I just I, I help them become more aware so they can see for themselves. Um, but yeah, it's confronting at first, you know, because if, if you're going to do very well at, at you know just being happy, that at some stage you need to face why you are not. You need to face your fears. You need to face why you you go into escape mode. Because remember, when you're in fear mode, and if you get triggered, just as a little cue or a clue for everyone, just ask yourself this: What is it I fear here? You know, and some people have different reactions. They might get angry, which is fight. They might get, they might escape, which is either procrastination or drinking or drugs or things like that. Or they, um, they freeze, which is they just get shut down. You know, that was my thing. I would just get shut down for days on end where I'd lose confidence. And, you know, because I feared judgment, I feared people's ridicule. But, um, you know, I just, I say a lot more now because I don't fear people's ridicule. <laughs> And I've got, I feel like I've got something to say. Yeah. So it's a, it's just a good thing. You know, you've got to, as I back up again, you've got to find a way to, uh, no matter what your craft is, you know, to even just the craft of being a human, you know, and becoming better at that. Uh, we need to face what is missing. You know, maybe we need to become, I don't know, learn more about nutrition or learn more about, you know, exercise and how movement affects the body, because there's, there's certainly a relationship there. You know, there's no way to separate the mind body connection. That was the original, you know, uh, course of the yogis, you know, because yoga means union between the mind and the body or consciousness and chemistry. And they're, they're linked because if you have fear, you'll have adrenaline. If you have happiness, you'll have endorphins. So, uh, the closest link to them is the endocrine system. And, and, you know, we've got all these, uh, people prescribing stuff, from the second point, which is better diet and better exercise, which is great, but that's only 20% of the equation. The 80-20 rule actually applies with the mind-body connection too. 80% of it is state of mind because you can, you know, have a very nutritious breakfast, but if you're depressed, your energy is not going to be very good. You can feel amazing mentally and you can have that Mars bar and you'll still feel pretty good. So, um, yeah, let's work on both. Let's work on outside in where you, you create a lifestyle where you, you support the health of the vessel, you know, that is the body and then work on your mind where it has greater wisdom and greater awareness to know where to go. This is, uh, this is someone's first time they're ever listening to this show and they've chosen this episode and they've never experienced or heard of anything. Like, this could be a, like, this is a lot to bring. It's a lot to bear. And suddenly to be, you know, if you've had any revelations listening to this, you might be like, oh, where does someone even start, man? Where do you even begin? Yeah, good question. And it is a lot to take. So, you know, maybe they can just press pause every now and again, <laughs> write some notes down. And, you know, I would always do that. I actually, when I have sessions with my teacher, I, I record and yeah. I just write things down later because it's hard to grasp all in one time. You know, yeah. the, the mind is just information's pouring over the surface of the mind constantly. So it takes time to, to understand things and to compute things. But yeah, a good starting point, you know, would be just to, to start, you know, start to do the practice. Um, it's a pretty simple process. I can just sort of intellectually explain it. Um, yeah, you just feel, get your, direct your conscious awareness to the top of your head and take a couple of minutes to come down to the surface of the mind at eye level. Um, Which is the, the, you often see it. It's interesting how there's a parallel between so many different cultures, but this point between the eyebrows is often uh, uh, venerated or, or depicted in, in pictures across cultures as yes. this focal point of, of the body. Yeah, for a reason. So, you know, it's, it's the mind's eye, that your conscious awareness, and this is just where it, it works most of the time. But you can move it around. Like if you're just sitting here and you're, all of a sudden you find you've just been drifting, you'll, you'll feel your, your attention move out mm -hmm. and then whoop, bring it back. So you, you'll, 
you're training yourself to be aware of your attention and to to have that self-control where you can direct your attention where you want it to. You're not just distracted by mindless things constantly. So you'll take a couple of minutes to come down to the surface of the mind. You'll spend another 30 seconds to a minute there, and then you go straight into the great Achille, which is around about your um, heart space, your center down here, and just sit still for three minutes, and that's it. Uh, Then you come out for some contemplation. You know, why? Okay, uh, I am where I'm at because of me. Why did I do that? <laughs> Why did I make those decisions? Have I noticed that I have similar behaviours to my, to my dad? Have I noticed that um, I always get triggered by this? How many more years do I need before I realise and I lose that shit, you know, and you just start to write these things down and you hopefully start to become more aware? Um, yeah, hopefully that's enough for people. If it's not, they, they can get a, a, a book online for like, I think it's $2.99, either Free Your Mind by Ron W. Rathbun, who's the founder of it, or Troubleshooting the Mind, the best books to start with, just on the Keeley. And just do it. Just do it. Yeah, ring me in a year and tell me how good you're going. And uh, I, I don't, you know, I, I'm, like I said, I'm not really here to sell anything. I just, I'm here to, you know, you, people like yourself are doing good things, I think with reaching people and people are obviously listening to this for a reason they want to better their life so uh, let's do that well what you are what you are selling though matt is what you are talking about you know if we if we met you at the belongel markets on a sunday and you started talking about this stuff people go oh it's just another guy talking about another kind of he's got crystals around his neck all right then yeah okay good on you buddy yeah yeah, i'll buy your hat i'm out of here but you're someone that using exactly what you've just described has helped some of the most well-known athletes on the planet achieve things that normal human beings are utterly incapable of doing. In fact, those athletes were incapable of doing before you came into their lives and showed them how to do these things. So you you do have an extraordinary authority <laughs> that is it's based upon you know a, a real achievement, real measurable results of before and after of you yeah. working with someone. And who wouldn't want at least a little part of what helped Mick Fanning get through? what he got through, who wouldn't want a little a little part of what helped someone like Stephanie Gilmore rise to become just an extraordinary athlete, uh, male, female, doesn't matter. Like she's un- unbelievable achievements, what that woman has done. Yeah. Who wouldn't want a bit of that? Who wouldn't yeah. want access to that, man? <laughs> yeah, let's give it to him. <laughs> You said you you said you teach you teach classes. Yeah, I teach a, a class. I live down in Cronulla, and I teach the regular class. So I've had some students that have been coming for you know because I've been teaching for ten years. Uh, so I have my regular class, and my wife teaches the beginners class. So we just have two classes a week, and it's the most of what I do when I'm working with whether they're corporates or whether they're athletes is um you know I, I barely even touch. Uh, you know, their goals or performance or even physical health and lifestyle until we've sort of got a good grounding with the practice because I'm sure a lot of people's heads are spinning from some of this information, but I'm sure they, they're going, yeah, you know what, I, I should look into that. And when I say look into that, it's this, there's, you know, you can look into that outwardly, which is picking up a book, or you can look in, into that inwardly. You know, sense at eye level right now, that's the surface of your mind. Why are things there? Well, you put them there. It's either something you haven't done yet, that's why it's on your mind, or it's something you haven't understood yet, that's why it's still on your mind. And until you give yourself time to understand what's on your mind, it just stays there and it becomes clutter. And all of a sudden you can't focus. So having a practice where you can clear the surface of the mind helps you become focused, helps you become clear. And you just get back to your natural perception and your natural instinctual intuition and that everyone has, but they're, they're not, they haven't trained because we live in a world of you know, secondary point training where you, you're taught about people, places and things, but very little about yourself. Um, so let's learn both. 
Yeah. And perhaps go through life experiencing it more for what it is rather than just on this repetitive kind of almost like a like a machine that just reacts with like a Westworld robot running around just doing loops triggered by verbal phrases, you know, yeah. going through your whole like and, and, you know, everyone knows what I'm talking about when you suddenly like, well, I know I drove to work. I hope I didn't run any red lights along the way, but I don't remember the drive. God, isn't that so true? Like, it freaks I, me out when it happens. I use that as an example sometimes when I'm doing keynotes. Has anyone, you know, just picked up a book and they're halfway down the page and go, oh, shake the head, I'll start again? Yeah. You weren't paying attention. You know, halfway through a keynote, I'll say, so I've been speaking for 26 minutes now. You know, how many times have you drifted? Yeah. How many times have you, has your awareness gone where you, you didn't listen to something? That may have been a game changer for you. That might have been something that changed everything. We only go around once, man. And you missed it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. we, we only go around once and I want, to, I want to be as present as I possibly can both for myself but also for my family. You know, I think that's a really important thing as well is like I, I want to fully experience life here with my family. Um, you've got kids. What do you teach them about this kind of stuff? Um, they're still young. I've got a four and a two-year-old. So yeah, they're still early in the piece. But I mean, they watch us. When I say us, my wife and I meditate all the time. And he knows I'm going to class and teaching people meditation. And uh, yeah, he, he'll mimic me sometimes, you know, even funny places like on the toilet. <laughs> so uh, I, he's just going to grow up in that world. So yeah. I just, you know, I, I'm not in a rush to get him into his intellect. He's got right. plenty of time for that. I want him to stay in feeling. And <laughs> Taylor was just at our house a few weeks ago because he came out for Mick's farewell, of course. And, and uh so he's staying with us and, and he's wearing his moustache as he always does. He's got an amazing moustache at the moment. It's like the greatest <laughs> thing ever. Yeah. So, uh, and R River, who's my son, he's in the room with me and he goes, Dad, um, what's your feeling? Which is a pretty developed question for a four-year-old, by the way. I said, I feel content, River. What's your feeling? And he says, uh, I'm a bit shy. Why are you shy? I'm a bit scared of Taylor's moustache. <laughs> <laughs> we had a big laugh about that later. But maybe there's a villain with a moustache on a cartoon that he saw. I don't know. Right. But he, he's getting a good education, you know, and, and most of it's to come, of course. Yeah. You know, in, in no rush with him. He's, he's um, hopefully we're just being examples of good people and, you know, and, and he's watching that because we inherit, you know, unfortunately, all, most of the dysfunction you inherit is from your parents, you know. So um, I, I'm just so thankful that so much of my dysfunction will not got, be passed on to him. And if people are wondering about, well, what's Maddie talking about with these compartments and dysfunction? Um, what has your parents given you that you don't like about yourself? What cycles do you need to break that you don't want to pass on to your children? You know, like face that. Don't avoid it. And, and because these are, these are the children that have got to help save this shit, you know, and help you know, make this world a better place. And, and I was teaching this just to my last student earlier um, that I was coaching. You know, in, in the brain, it's about positive and negative, but in the mind, it's, it's harmony and disharmony. Harmony means you understand. Disharmony means you do not. It only becomes negative if you perpetuate the non-understanding. If you don't know something, that's fine, no problem. But if you start or perpetuate any negativity, you're going to run into some trouble. Um, so we, we want these minds to be become more aware on a mental level, not just brainiacs, but also mindful where they, they've got a good sense of people. You know, you want your children to be able to walk into the park and go, they're my people. But if you're driven by the need for acceptance and you'll just accept the very first friend that comes your way, you could be in with the wrong group for the next 10 years of your life um, or the wrong girlfriend later on as we get older. So we've got to look at what's driving you. Is it a need for acceptance, you know, and you'll just take the first person that accepts you or is it a, a real like-mind connection where you go, yeah, I really love this girl, you know, and I, like my wife, I, 
she was in my class and I, I, you know, as I'm going around the room and I'm, I'm writing down my feedback for everyone, I get to her and I go, oh my God, that's going to be my wife. <laughs> and, you know, we haven't had a date or anything like that, but I just had com- complete knowing. And, um, and, you know, sure enough, she became my wife and I didn't even ask her on a date for about a month, but I just knew. And, and uh, it wasn't an intellectual thing. It wasn't, it was just all feeling. Yeah. Right. That's, you've, 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 Given us a lot to think about and a lot to want to explore. I'm so grateful that you came on the show today, man. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, I hope it um, uh, it makes people look within themselves and, and, you know, just make their life better and in so they'll make the world better. Love it. Thanks, man. That was Matt Griggs. You can find him online, M-A-T-T-G-R-I-G-G-S.com or on Instagram. He's on mattgriggs.com. Two Ts, two Gs, well, three Gs if you put it all together there. Let Matt know that you heard him here. It'd be great to, you know, just give him a bit of a rev up, let him know you heard him, what you might have got out of the show. Thanks to everybody that uh, was on the Facebook group this week. It's been so good to talk to you every day. I'm loving it over there. If you do want to join us, osha.is slash FB group. Uh, it's a Facebook group of people that listen to this podcast, and it's freaking good. Do let Matt know you heard him here. Um, and if you do need me, you can always get in touch with me. On, send me an email. Send us your email at gmail.com. Thank you to my audio producer, the incomparable Andy Ma, Rachel Barrett, my show producer, Toe Hider for the music, you for listening. And, um, yeah, I guess my wife for allowing me to get a pressure cooker this week because that was pretty much a freaking awesome thing. We have a pressure cooker in our house now. And now I can make beans from zero to hero in less than 20 minutes. I know that's not much, but it's freaking exciting, dude. That excellent nutrition is just a button push away. We live in the future, and it's an exciting time. Things are going to be all right, because we're all going to be here. All right, my loves, have a cracking week. Um, If you need me through the week, you know where to find me. Happy meditating. I'll see you next week. Until then, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. 
for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.